Let's sing number 
can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 comes on the heels of all of this positive, unifying language. Chapter 3 ends with the seed whose fruit is righteousness and sown in peace by those who make peace. All of this very positive language. And then suddenly chapter 4 takes a severe left turn. And James starts laying out these imperatives again. And some commentators speculate that he's talking to perhaps a different part of the audience than he's been talking to earlier in the letter. Because the language suddenly becomes much harsher, much more corrective. And the language goes from my brethren, which James has been calling his audience all the way through the early chapters of the letter. He goes from brethren to calling them adulterers. Now, of course, all the way through the Old Testament, we're familiar with that language. God speaks of Israel as adulterers, as a unfaithful wife, whenever Israel would turn their attention to foreign gods, God would refer to them as unfaithful wives. Well, again, James picks up that language. Again, indication that he is very, very informed by the Old Testament. So whoever his audience is at this point, he's clearly calling them enemies of God or at least potential enemies of God because of their adultery, which would mean chasing other gods, chasing after the world. Suddenly the language gets to be about quarrels and conflicts. Why do you fight? Why are you arguing with each other? Why do you have wars among each other? Well, he hasn't even given us any indication up until chapter 4 who he's talking to or what this is about. We don't know what the background was. But apparently some portion of the group he's writing to were actually involved in fighting and quarrels and he feels that he has to correct them. To make things worse, in verse 5, he quotes a bit of scripture that isn't in the scripture. So uh, we will read a little bit of commentary on why that would be. What is James getting at, giving him the benefit of the doubt? Is he really referring to a scripture when he's quoting here? Is he referring to some religious bit of literature that we're not aware of? What is James really getting at? So it's kind of a tough and vague chapter, these first few verses, but then it becomes very corrective, and he says things that we can all agree with. By the time he gets to Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We could all say, well, yes, that's really good advice. We can apply that to ourselves good. But the early part of the chapter doesn't seem to apply directly to us or to the church or to the people who he has referred to as brethren up until now. There seems to be some faction that he's talking to about their quarrels and their fights. Now, as he talks about that, He does say things that are helpful to us because he does talk about the human condition. Part of the human condition is that we fight and we quarrel and we war because we lust, because we desire, because we want things. And then we don't get those things. So what do we do about that? We fight with people who have those things so that we can conquer those people and take those things. 
And then James is going to say, the reason you don't have those things is because you didn't ask. And apparently, he's saying, you didn't ask God. If God wanted you to have those things, he'd have given you those things. You don't have those things because you didn't ask for those things. And then someone's going to say, yeah, but I did ask. Certainly, the name it, claim it people would say, but we did ask. And we still didn't get it. And so James is going to say, that's because you ask amiss. And he's going to define what that means. So there are bits of wisdom and instruction that we can pull out of this chapter. But as far as what particular situation James is referring to, what fights, what quarrels, what factions within the group, who these adulteresses are, we don't know. He doesn't tell us. He just launches in. And so... Chapter 4, verse 1, we just have to launch in. Chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Essentially, what he's saying is the reason that you have quarrels and conflicts among you is because there are pleasures in your members. I believe that he's not talking about members of your group or members of your synagogue or your church. He's talking about the members of your body, the same way that Paul would say in Romans 7, that the members of his body war against the spirit. And the members of your body want pleasure. Talk to any psychologist, psychiatrist, read any book on basic psychology. It will begin with the premise that all human beings are motivated by two things. Get pleasure, avoid pain. That's what motivates human beings as they go through life. Well, James is saying that it is that desire for pleasure within your body, in your flesh, in the members of your body that are the reason for the conflicts and the quarrels among you. Because, verse 2, because you lust. Oh, you don't just desire. You desire with great passion. You lust after things. And in case you think you don't, go home and see how much stuff you have that you don't really need. I've been house cleaning lately. And I have found lots and lots of stuff that I don't need. I don't even know how I got it. I don't even know when I acquired it or where. But by golly, I've got one of those. If anybody needs one, I've got one. In fact, I've got two or three. I have no idea where I get this stuff. I have it because at some point I decided I got to have that. And then I did whatever I had to do to go get that. At this very moment, I desire, oh, no, no. I lust after a Google Pixel phone. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. That's what I'm wanting right now. You know what I do on a regular basis? I figure out, how do I afford that? How am I going to pay for that? What am I going to do? Oh, I have a plan. I have figured out, huh? It's not an apple. No, it's not an apple. Oh, oh no. It's the phone I want. So anytime that the Bible says things about our lust and our desire, and you think you're not lustful or not desiring things, think about where you live. 
Think about what car you drive. Think about the clothes you've put on. Think about the fact that you left the house today saying, yes, I look like this and I'm good with that. And then you left the house probably yesterday, the day before, you left the house with something in your head that you thought, I must go acquire this. I have all these things, but I need more. I need my hair to look the way their hair looks. I need, that's not me, by the way. I don't. Or I need those shoes, or I need those clothes, or I need. I was walking through the mall one time. I've told you this story before. I was walking through the mall one time with my son when he was young, and we walked by a game store, and, he, and there was a game that, I don't know, cost about $50 in the window of the store, and he said to me, I need that. <laughs> and I said to him, no, you want that. What you need is $50. <laughs> From the very youngest age, we just start this constant craving, desire for stuff. Here, I'll give you an example. Okay, so you have a kid. We all know you have a kid. You have a dancing kid. Okay. Christmas morning, do you overwhelm her with gifts? Does she get way too many gifts? Probably. Between us, between the family, too many gifts, right? So the first gift she opens, she's pretty excited about it. Oh, good, it's one of these. Oh, great. By the time she's on the 15th gift, does she remember the first gift? No, no memory of it whatsoever. In fact, gift number one probably doesn't get played with for a long time because she's on gift number nine. Right? Yeah, so where does that start? You didn't teach her that. You didn't put that into her or raise her like that. That's just innate in human beings that we're not satisfied with what we've got. We're not satisfied with gift number one. As soon as we know that gift number two exists, we want that now. Then we find out about gift number three, and we just can't wait to get there. And gift number one and two languish because you get the picture. You get the idea. We go through the rest of our lives that way, thinking, sure, I have all this. Sure, I have a closet full of clothes, and I have... Drawers and drawers full of stuff, and I have a house full of stuff. I've got so much stuff, but you leave the house thinking, but what else I need? What else I want? I also desire one of these or two of those. Or, or then one drives by you that you didn't know existed. Now that you know it exists, I want that. Yes, Wolf? And it takes more and more stimulus to satisfy once you get down that train. Doesn't it? It does. I need more stuff. And more stuff. And then you get used to whatever level of stuff you're at. It's like drugs. It's like drugs. I need more. I constantly need more. Well, James is saying that's the source of your conflicts, your disappointments, your unhappiness, your quarrels between each other. It's the fact that you constantly lust for stuff. And because you lust after things, somebody else might have things that you want. It's not even necessary that they have more things. They just have something you want. Nations do that. Oh, you've got oil? Well, we don't. And then we march in there and we break things and kill people and we take their oil. Because the world operates that way. So James says, you lust. And you do not have. So you commit murder. 
See how quickly he leapt right from you lust? Because you desire. And once that lust takes over, once that wanton desire takes over, you move very quickly, very immediately to, well, then I'll do whatever I got to do to get that. So you commit murder. And you are envious. Why? Because somebody else has something you don't have. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You're not satisfied with the fact that you can't obtain it. And you're not satisfied with the fact that somebody else has it. Because you lust, because you wantonly desire, well, then you're going to fight and quarrel until you get it, whatever it is that you're lusting after. So he goes back to, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, the typical word for prayer is not the word he's using. He's using the typical Greek word for asking, inquiring, asking for something. And so different commentators have said, well, who then is James referring to in this asking? Who are you asking? He might be saying, instead of fighting with the other person over what they have, ask them. He might be saying that. He might be saying... The things you don't have, you don't have because God has determined you're not going to have them and you haven't asked God. I think that's the more likely interpretation because of what he says next. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, evil motives. So that you can spend it on your pleasures. And where did he begin? It's the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. So if you have this desire for pleasure, if you have this desire to satiate your flesh to make you feel good, if you have that kind of lust and wanton desire in you, if that's your reason for going to God saying, give me more, well, God can figure that out. Okay, so now that grandma's grabbing your daughter, (laughs) we're going to go back to asking about your daughter again. Because she just naturally wants and desires, have you attempted ever to curb her wants and desires? Oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't even get to the end of the question. (laughs) Have you ever tried to curb those wants and desires by not giving her what she wants and desires? Mm -hmm. She's hit me. She's hit you before. Suddenly this became the Maury Povich show. And I I didn't expect that. Because we think the way to correct people who want and desire things is to teach them that they can live without it. And so we don't give that to them. And we're just us. We're just sinful little wormy little us. And we figure that out. Don't you think God has figured that out? God has figured out that the things you want and desire sometimes are not good for you. They're going to hurt you. I grew up with the phrase, be careful what you wish for. What's the rest of it? You might get it. And sometimes the things you get just aren't good for you. Have you heard all the stories of the lottery winners who either became drug addicts or or? Within a couple of years, they had wasted all their millions or whatever else. They finally got what they wanted, what they lusted for, what they desired, and then it became the ruination of them. Paul talks about, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to be rich. I know how to suffer lack. 
because I contend that wealth and riches can destroy you as quickly as lack and poorness can. In fact, probably quicker, because human beings don't do well with unlimited choice. When human beings can choose whatever they want, they choose badly. And so God knows that. He keeps limitations on you. And so you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you spend it on your pleasures. Now, this is also something that's brought up in, in John 5.14, 1 John 5.14. Somebody look up 1 John 5.14 because this isn't unique to James. John writes about it. It's an idea that Jesus brings across. 1 John 5.14, who's got that? And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything, he hears us. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Recently on a Wednesday night, as we were working our way through the book of Ezekiel, we saw that God said, if somebody chases after foreign gods, if they become enemies of Yahweh, enemies of the true God, and then they come to a prophet and inquire of the prophet, God says, I'm not going to answer them. Because God knows how to differentiate between those that are his and those that are enemies of his, or those that are chasing after their foreign gods or becoming worldly. These are the same people that... He is going to refer to in the next verse as adulteresses. People have become too friendly with the world. And so they want the world's stuff so that they can heap it on their own flesh so that they can satisfy their pleasures. And he says, if that's what you're asking for, then you're not asking a right. John says, if you're asking any other way than according to the will of God, then he's not going to hear you. He's not going to answer that prayer you have to go to God in accordance with what he wants for you has provided for you through the spirit of God and not so that you can say make me rich make me powerful give me political influence give me a bigger car I want a grander house I want perfect children that's because she hit you I threw that in what God wants for you are those things that produce righteousness in your life and which will ultimately take you all the way to your predestined home. That's what he intends for you. And if that means that you don't get everything here and now, if you don't get your, what's that phrase, best life now, if you don't get that now, that's all part of God's intention and plan to get you to your best life later which is going to be living in his presence forever. And he does that by training and instructing you. And he trains and instructs you by the things that he brings through your life. So we go to God and we ask. And we ask according to his will. But then the hard part for human beings is to accept whatever his answer is. That's the tough part. We have no problem with going and saying, God, give me. In fact, usually we're in such a hurry, we don't have time for two syllables. God, give me. Just give me stuff. Make me healthy. Take care of me. Take care of me all the time. Aren't I your favorite kid? Come on. But James points out 
that if you ask and you ask amiss and you ask for the purpose of heaping it on your flesh, that you shouldn't expect that he's going to give you anything you've asked for. Ask according to his will. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. And then James says very kindly, oh, you slightly confused friends. (laughs) It's not what he says. He goes right for the jugular. When he yanks out this word, you adulteresses, that goes right back to the Old Testament. It goes right back to all the Old Testament prophets who ever condemned Israel for the way that they interacted with the foreign nations and the surrounding gods and the groves and the, and the altars on the hills and the ways that they worship Baal and everything else. You adulteresses. When he yanks that out, it's not a friendly, kind word. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Okay, (laughs) wow is right. So let's check this. Do you agree with James? Do you agree with what James just said? And yet how attractive is it to every one of us to be friends with the world? To just make nice, to just go along and get along. That's what most of us would rather do is just not have the conflict. Well, James's argument is that if you have friendship with the world and the world system and the way the world acts, well, that is open hostility toward God because God, all the way through the Old Testament, time and time again, through every single prophet, says over and over, certainly through his law, certainly through all the rules and the dictates that he lays out for Israel time and time again, he says, it's me, it's only me, it's exclusively me, you have to be satisfied with me, you have to find your fulfillment in me, I'm the enough God, I'm all you need. He says it over and over. And yet, we keep thinking, well, yes, it's God and the latest new car and the the bigger home, and all the stuff. So James is saying, it's black and white. You're either completely committed to God, or you're chasing after the world, trying to be friends with the world. You're adapting to the world. Here, let me give you some examples. Maybe this will help. I like to watch TV too much. I don't mean I watch too much TV. I mean I like it too much. Because sometimes I'm flipping around the channels and I see things or hear things that I know are offensive to God. And the question is, when I hear those, do I turn off the TV and open my Bible? Or do I justify that they said that and think, oh, it's not that bad and keep watching? Now, I applied all that to me so that I'm not pointing out any of you. Thank you. Yeah, but we do that, don't we? Or we hang out with our God-hating friends. And we justify it in our minds because we say, well, we're probably bringing some good into their life. We're, we're bringing some godliness into their life. We might witness to them. We might be, we're a testimony of Christ in their life. So it's good that we're hanging out with them while they're sitting there blaspheming God wildly. But we eat with them, hang out with them, be friends with them. 
So is God the enough God? Is God the sufficient God? Is God really all you need in your life? Or is it, I need God, I need all of God, and these friends over here. And these TV shows over here. And these movies over here. The, I don't, there aren't magazines anymore. I was going to say, and these magazines, but that just shows my age. So... Yeah, how do you live your life? How do you conduct your life? Do you conduct your life in a way where God gets the, the genuine exclusive worship and all your desire is toward him? Or is your desire lusting toward the things that satisfy your flesh? If your desires are lusting toward the things that satisfy your flesh, then you're friends with the world. And to be friends with the world is enmity against God. So... He goes on. It's hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So now it's a matter of the conscience, a matter of the mind, a matter of decisions. What kind of decisions do you make in your life? Do you make decisions that lend toward godliness? Or are you making decisions that trend toward worldliness? If you've made decisions and are continuing to make decisions that are heaping things to your flesh, satisfying your desires, satisfying your lust, rather than being pleasing to God, chasing after the righteousness and the holiness of God, well, then you wish to make yourself an enemy of God. That's James's argument. Now, verse 5. We have to take a minute with verse 5, because at verse 5, James quotes a passage of Scripture that you can't find anywhere in the Old Testament. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Find that in the Old Testament. Find that anywhere in the Bible. Find Jesus saying that. Find that scripture. Well, you can't because it doesn't exist in the Bible. Maybe he's quoting from some external religious source that the Jews held in high esteem, but he calls it scripture. It's holy writing. I'm going to read for you out of one of the commentaries that I read, just because they wrestle with it the same way that we're all wrestling with it, but he also offers a solution. James 4, 5, this is one of the most difficult verses to translate in the entire letter. A very literal translation would be, Or think you that vainly the scripture says to envy yearns the spirit which was made to dwell in you, but he gives great grace. So the question is, is the spirit that James mentions the Holy Spirit or is he talking about the human spirit? Is the spirit to be taken as the subject of the verb yearns? or as its object. Is envy to be seen as unrighteous desire or as righteous jealousy? There are numerous translations that are possible. A, the spirit who indwells you jealously yearns for you and gives you more grace. That's one. That would be the spirit of God. B is he, God, that's the spirit, yearns jealously for the Holy Spirit which indwells you, and he gives more grace. Or C, 
the human spirit which indwells you yearns to envy, but he, God, gives more grace. Not only is the translation of the sentence a problem, but also the apparent indication is that it is a part of Scripture, but that poses more difficulties. James's question, typically rhetorical, the question is, or do you think the Scripture says without reason or says vainly? And that's how he introduces this section. The ambiguous sentence that follows is not a direct quotation of any passage in Scripture. So rather than assume that James quoted from some other sacred book or some unknown Greek translation of the Old Testament, or that he's simply referring to a general sense of Scripture, it seems more reasonable to assume that he focused on the quotation that's coming up in verse 6, a statement clearly taken from Proverbs 3.34, which is, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's also quoted in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. So it might just be a bit of clumsy writing on James's part. There is a Bible verse being quoted in the latter part of verse 6, but the apparent quote... He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us isn't a scriptural quote. So giving James the benefit of the doubt, let's assume that what he means is, see, the human spirit which indwells you yearns to envy because that fits with the general context of what we've already read. And the answer to that fact is that he, God, gives more grace. That's the good news in the midst of all our yearning. Yes, sir? Could that have just been a copyist error? If it were a copyist error, then we would have other copies that don't have that error. But the general agreement is this is what James wrote. So I'm more prone to think that the scripture he's referring to is God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, that that's the quote from Proverbs 3.34 that he means to be referring to, and that probably what he is saying is that the spirit of a man jealously wants and desires, but that it's God who gives more grace as we are in the midst of our desiring. That's giving James the best benefit of the doubt. Does anybody have a different reading of that they'd like to offer or a different understanding? Because as I read, it's one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to translate. It's just a clumsy verse. Nothing? I have a question. Okay. In the Greek, is there any marking of quotations in verse 5? Is it possible that... Okay. No, actually the quotation marks and the colon, all, all of the punctuation for the most part is added by the translation so is it possible that the he jealously desires a spirit is kind of a general statement and not necessarily a quote and that he's actually talking about the quote yes that's possible yeah and that's why i said that's the most probable understanding of it in fact the earliest greek texts don't even have divisions between words it's just all capital greek letters And so when it comes to questions of punctuation or capitalization, those are decisions that the translators make. So like the capital S on spirit, so you get the idea that it's the Holy Spirit, that's a translational choice. It's not in the original text. True, Steve? 
even the word scripture, just his writings. Just his writings, absolutely. Right, Jeff? Okay. So then verse 6 is the very good news. So five verses, he's been laying out this very harsh language, calling them adulteresses, but verse 6 is the answer to the problem. You do fight and you do lust and you do want to heap it on your flesh. That's the human condition. That's just the way you are. That's the way you're hardwired. That's what I've been trying to prove. The answer is not do better. The answer is not fix yourself. The answer is not immediately get busy improving yourself. The answer is God gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You've heard me say over and over again through the years that the most common sin mentioned throughout the Bible from beginning to end is pride. That sense of independence, that sense of I will decide for myself. It starts all the way back in Eden when God says, don't eat it. And the devil says, yeah, you can probably eat it. And Eve goes, yeah, I think I'll eat it. Okay, well, well then forget what God said. I'm going to do what I want to do. And ever since then, human beings have been doing what they want to do. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's ego. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit therefore to God. That's willing submission. In years past, we have talked about how the church is structured, how marriages are structured, how the family is structured, and we've seen this idea of submission time and time again. Paul writes a lot about submitting, submitting to each other, submitting to one another, and it's a willing submission because you understand your place in the economy of God. That marriages just work better when people fit the roles that they were designed for. That churches just operate better when people fit the roles that they were designed for. Societies work better when people fill the roles that they're assigned, that they're naturally gifted toward. And so he's talking about willing submission for the purpose of understanding that God is gracious to the humble. That is your Natural response, then, is to humble yourself, submit yourself, therefore, to God. And then, be if you're worldly, if you're friends of the world, which makes you enemies of God, then clearly you are friends with the prince of the power of the air. Clearly you like the world system. Clearly you like the way the dark forces of this world are going and you want to be friends with them so the other half of submitting to God is resist the devil and he will flee from you I can't say it any better than that resist the devil and he'll flee from you what does that tell you first off resist the devil what does that tell you about the devil resist the devil what does that mean he's coming after you he's there all the time And in context, where does James place the devil? He's the one feeding you the fleshly desires. He's the one who is making you lust after the world. He is the one that is separating you from God and drawing you toward these other gods, these other idols, these other things that you would rather worship rather than God. But he says, 
resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, same thought, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That language is very, very Hebraic language. That idea of ceremonial cleansing, the people he's writing to would be very familiar with that idea. When you look at the furniture that is in the temple and before that in the tabernacle, what is the first piece of furniture that the priest has to approach before he goes into the tabernacle? He has to go to the laver of cleansing, exactly. He has to go there and wash. He has to go there and clean. One of the things that Jesus' disciples were accused of was picking corn and eating, not only on the Sabbath, but with unwashed hands. Because the Jews are very big into ceremonially cleansing themselves, being clean for the Sabbath, being being ceremonially prepared. And so he picks up that exact language and says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify the same way that they would outwardly purify themselves. He now says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So there's no room for yes, God, and the world. That's double-mindedness. There's no room for yes, Christ, and all these other religions. Yes, I'm completely into God and Christ, and I'm a Christian, and that's what I believe in, and I'm kind of playing around with this stuff in the world. There's no room for that. That's double-mindedness, and your heart is not pure if that's the case. So James says, purify your heart. Don't be double-minded. Here he's going to say, be miserable and mourn and weep. I can only assume that he's talking about the process of repentance. That in the process of turning away from the world and turning toward God, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. One of those biblical paradoxes. You go up by going down. You get exalted by humbling yourself in the presence of the Lord. And having said that, at what we call verse 11, he starts talking about speaking against each other arguing with each other, I think to a degree we could say that ties into the fact that this chapter starts with the source of your quarrels and your conflicts. Do not speak against one another because he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now he's talking about the law again. I thought we were done with this. I don't want to talk about this anymore. It was hard enough the first time. I became Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) I don't know what just happened. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. I think what he's getting at here is that the law, which these Jews would all know, the audience he's writing to would all understand what the law says. He's saying the law is very clear that you're supposed to be brethren and you're not supposed to 
disabuse each other in any way. You're supposed to be acting as the community of Israel. So much of the law, so many of the ordinance have to do with how you treat each other. Once you get past, you'll have no other gods and don't make idols and don't take my name in vain and remember my Sabbath day to keep it holy. The next six of the commandments is how you deal with each other. Honor mom and dad and don't kill each other and don't lie to each other and don't commit adultery and and don't desire what somebody else has and lust after that. So I think he's saying here, you know what the law says and the law is very clear about treating each other fairly. Don't bear false witness against each other. Don't lie against each other. And so if you're doing that, You're doing the very thing that the law says don't do. And if you think the law, which is non-negotiable, if you think the law is negotiable for you, then you've become the judge of the law. Because the law says don't do it. Now, I've known people through the years. Maybe you've known some people like this too. People who are so comfortable in their Christianity and so comfortable in their relationship with God that they think the things that would be wrong for everybody else in Christianity aren't completely wrong for me. I can kind of dip my toe in some sin. You know, I can can skirt up right against the edges of sin. It doesn't affect me the way it affects other people. But that idea that God can be very clear, very precise, very didactic in his teaching, and that he can say, avoid sin, and that he can say, flee from the devil, resist the devil. The fact that the Bible can say you have to be completely committed to God and not any part of friends with the world, well then, if you are the kind of person who wants to skirt around the edges of sin and want to play with sin a little bit, then James would argue, you've become God's judge. You've put God on trial. You've put God in the box, and you're demanding of him that you're going to decide what's right and what's wrong where his word is concerned. What's important, what's not important. Which parts really mean something to me? Which parts, meh, not so much. If you say the law says be good to each other, but then you're not good to each other, well, then you're judging the law. Do you see the argument now? So James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. For if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. But a judge of the law, clearly he's condemning that idea. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save or to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Verse 12 is very, very important. Let me tell you why. Because you can go on Facebook or YouTube or pretty much any social media thing today or walk in lots of churches today and you can see people freely judging other people. You don't do it the way I do it. You don't think the way I think. You don't dot the I's I dot. You don't cross the same T's. Therefore, you're of the devil 
and I'm completely right. You don't have your theological ducks in a row the way I do, therefore I disagree with you and I freely judge you. The amount of judging that goes on on Facebook is astounding. The amount of people who start with, I know better than you. And it's very much like what I was just talking about with the video. Right away, people start, well, what about and what about and And I say, it's just not up to us to judge. That's the point. I say it all the time. Everybody in this room will say and agree that they've heard me say it at some time before. I say it over and over and over again. When people write to me and say, let's say, are all Arminians condemned? That's what they want to ask, questions like that. My answer is always, I don't have that jurisdiction. God didn't leave it up to me to say who's saved and who isn't. My job is to tell the truth. My job is to present Christ as altogether lovely, and those people who are drawn to Christ will be saved. It's not my job to decide whether they're theology is correct enough to be saved do you love christ are you drawn to christ do you love the brethren by this will all men know that you're my disciples by your love one for another but i don't see that love what i see is open condemnation and a genuine denial of what the word says because the word says love each other be good to each other the bible says if you find a brother in a fault You that are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you're also caught in a snare, caught in a trap. But I don't see that on the internet anywhere. What I see is open hostility and condemnation of supposedly other Christians. Even if they're not other Christians, who are you to judge? So here James says, and he agrees with Paul in this, Paul says, who are you to judge another man's servant? I mean, the Bible is full of don't judge. Jesus says, judge not. Now, you're supposed to render good judgment where the actions of your life and the decisions of your life are concerned, but you're not told anywhere. If anybody can think of a verse, please show me. Show me where in the New Testament it says, now that you are saved by God, you have the freedom to go out and openly judge other people. Show me where that is. It doesn't exist. Instead, what you find is there is only one lawgiver and judge. And the reason that he can judge is that he's the lawgiver. And because he's the gracious, righteous, just judge. He knows everything. You don't know everything. You don't know what God's about to do with somebody. You don't know what God has planned for anybody. You don't know the final outcome of anybody. Look around. Look around. Here, I'm going to prove my point. Look around. Don't keep staring at me. Look around. Yeah. You see the people that are here? Where'd all those other people go? Where are the other people? If everybody stayed here that has ever been here, we we wouldn't know what to do with them. We'd have to buy the building that Jennifer put online this week. Because we wouldn't know where to put everybody. Where'd they go? Well, they they all left for one reason or another. They all had their their reasons for leaving. Some moved away. Some decided not to stay with us. They all moved away. But I'm tired of people saying to me when they get here, 
man, this is great. I love it. I'm with you. I'm so with you. I believe you completely. Everything you're teaching, you can count on me. I'll be right there beside. If you never need anything, call me. I've heard this for 20 years. The people who will never leave my side, who aren't here anymore, which is why John Riesinger said years ago, he said, whenever anybody says to me, boy, I'm with you, boy, I'm... He says, time and the devil will tell. Because who knows what's going to happen. If I had believed all those people who said how for me they were, if I had believed them, I'd be heartbroken today. I wouldn't be able to keep getting up here because I'd feel like eventually everybody's going to leave. So what's the point? I'd be in my room with my books just happily doing my theologizing. But I don't know what God intends to do with anybody. I don't know if he intends for them to stay at GCA. By the way, the answer to that whole conundrum that I just laid out is if God intends for you to be here, you'll be here. If people leave, God doesn't intend for them to stay here. Okay, bye. Wish them well. See you later. I don't hold a grudge against anybody who's not here anymore. I'm just amazed at all the people who swore they'd always be here who aren't here anymore. But that's the human condition. But I don't know what God is doing. If I, here's my point. If I don't know what God is doing with anybody long term, then who am I to judge them? I don't know what God's doing. And by the way, either do you. Who are you to judge? There's one lawgiver. There's one judge. And that judge says that he is going to judge. He is going to recompense He's going to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will recompense. He'll handle it. He'll take care of it. He's going to decide who the sheep and the goats are. He's going to decide who gets into his heaven. That's not up to you. Can you tell I'm sort of tired of all the judging online? It's it's tiring. It's sickening. So James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, then you're not a doer of the law, which is what you're supposed to be if you're a Jew. But then you're a judge of the law because you're not actually doing it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He is the one who is able to save or to destroy. Do you understand that? That's why he's a good judge. Because he can actually implement his judgment. Years ago, I was talking about the power of God. Talking about the power of God to do whatever he wanted. To speak worlds into existence. To speak galaxies into existence. And Tom over here said, you know, it doesn't do any good to say he's sovereign if he's not also all-powerful. Because I can say, I'm in charge, but if I don't have the power to enact my decisions, I'm not in charge. Only an absolutely sovereign God who is absolutely powerful can not only say what his will is, but then enact his will every single time, because he's all-powerful. That's the God James is talking about who's saying because he can save completely and utterly and because he can condemn completely and utterly, he's the only one who is a true judge. 
Because no matter how often I say to anybody, here, April, you're saved. You're saved. In my mind, my decision, you're saved. I saved you. I've decided. You're savey. You're very savey. I've saved you. You're wee saved. Does that do anything for you? Okay, you're condemned. Okay, you're completely condemned then. And condemned is what you are. You're condemned me. You're all con- You don't care, do you? No, because you know one thing about me. I don't have the power. I can't do it. It doesn't matter what I think. And that's what I think whenever anybody judges me. That's why Paul argues about judging. I don't even judge my own self. It's all up to God to judge these things. That's what I think when people judge me, which they do quite openly because I'm out here saying the things I say and advancing the things I advance. And so people feel free behind the anonymity of their keyboards to judge away. And I don't care because, number one, their keyboards can't condemn me. And number two, they have no power. There is one judge. There is one lawgiver. He's the one who can save you utterly and completely. He's the one who can condemn you. And because he can bring you into his heaven or he can drive you into outer darkness, for that reason, he's the one you need to be concerned with. Not me, not anybody else. I don't care about anybody's judgment. I care about his. That's why I keep saying I play to an audience of one. If he's satisfied with me, then I don't really care if somebody else condemns me. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save or to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? By the way, let me add one quick thing and we're done for the morning. Notice he didn't say, who are you to condemn your brother? Because then the people who openly condemn, everybody who doesn't agree with them, could say, well, see, James is talking about brothers, but I'm not condemning brethren. I'm condemning people outside the church. I'm openly condemnatory of them. Well, here it says your neighbor. I know my neighbor. That's not a saved guy. But it's not my position to judge him because God might save him. He might save him through the intermediary agency of the fact that he's lived next to a preacher all this time. Or he might save him through reading the Bible or watching TV. I don't know what method God's going to use. And it's not up to me to condemn him, not only because I don't have the power, but because I don't have the jurisdiction. God never gave me the jurisdiction to condemn anybody. Neighbor is used quite a bit in the New Testament. Does that generally refer to non-brothers? Where he's talking here between brethren and adulteresses, they're all part of the community of Israel, and as the community of Israel, they're all neighbors. And so I think he's saying within the community, not just the brethren, but generally those that are under the law, which he's mentioned, those who are trying to keep the law and who judge the law, his audience... So in other passages, you have to look at the context, I guess. Absolutely. You have to look at the passage. You have to look at the context. You have to look at who's 
James is writing to, whose James is writing to. You have to look at who James is writing to and then understand these things in that context. There were believers in Israel and there were unbelievers in Israel at this point. And the church was just forming for the first time and people were still debating about Christ and the necessity of Christ and the necessity of keeping the law. And so, of course, there were going to be vigorous debates about all that kind of stuff. But what James says is, don't make these quarrels turn into condemnation because it's not your job to judge. And I think that's a really important lesson for all of us as we go through this world defending Christianity. Our job is to tell the truth, but our job is not to look at anybody and say, well, that's it. You're going to hell. Bye-bye. We, we have the responsibility of correcting our brothers. Absolutely. But to do so in a... In a judgmental way... That's it, not in a judgmental way, which is the way it's too often done. We're to do it in a spirit of meekness, in a spirit of gentleness. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who inquires about the hope that is within you, but do so with gentleness, meekness. Continue you know. brother upon your side on the journey as if you're walking with him in the process. Yes, absolutely, which is what a parakletos is, one who walks alongside, who's taking the journey with you. But importantly... If we are ambassadors of Christ on this planet, what do we make Christ look like? How are we representing Christ? Are we making him attractive, altogether lovely, one who is gracious and forgiving? Or are we making him a legalistic judge who condemns and openly hates everybody who doesn't dot every I and cross every T exactly right. No, he's gracious, he's forgiving, he's loving, he's kind. We need to represent him that way, which we can only do by showing grace and long-suffering and kindness to people. If we're being condemnatory and ugly to people, that's like saying Christ is condemnatory and ugly. And the world will love us for that. And the world will love us for that. And then we're open enemies of God. So there it is. Yes, sir. Another reason to be kind with your words if you're talking to someone else and you've made every effort to be accurate and to take their feelings into consideration and to do what you can to speak in the way that God would have you speak, that doesn't mean that they're going to accept it that way. Because I think most of us, if not all of us, have known people that if you so much as bring up God or the Bible, they immediately click into Bible thumper, and you're just full of hate, and slam away they go. And you can tear yourself up going, what did I say wrong, when in fact you didn't say anything wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's why if you're going to start down that road talking to someone, take a deep breath, pray about it hopefully, and then choose the words carefully so that you don't come back going, did I say something wrong? Because you thought about it first and you tried to say it in a kind way and, and know that sometimes it's not going to be received well. The truth is the two-edged sword. Right. Yeah. The same word brings life to some, death to others. And Paul says, who's sufficient for that? That's why it's so, so very important that we're guided by the Holy Spirit. Because of our own power, by our own authority, we can't convince anybody of anything. But through the Holy Spirit, we'll choose the right words, say the right things. And if God is in the enterprise of saving that person, the lights are going to go on and they're going to get it. And that, the definition of agape is walking in the commandments of the Lord. 
Absolutely. There's just... action. There's a verb aspect to it. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of sacrifice involved. Hmm. Anything else? Those are good comments. Yeah, Anything? Apparently you. You going to do some dancing? Well, of course you love dancing. Don't we all? How do you argue with that? Well, all right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.